Today, I'm talking all about pet insurance. I'm discussing hair loss in cats and then moving on to foreign bodies and linear foreign bodies, bits of string getting stuck in intestines. I'm going to be talking about a spayed cat who's acting like they're in season. And then finally, I'm going to be discussing nasal tumours in dogs. But before we kick off, here's the intro. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast, the show that answers all of your dog and cat health questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian, Dr. Alex Avery. Hi, and welcome to episode number 14 of the Dr. Alex Answers Show. And if we're just meeting for the first time, I'm Dr. Alex, the vet behind ourpetshealth.com, where my aim is to help you and your pet to live a healthier, happier life. And this is the show where I answer any question you have about how to prevent disease, how to keep your pet healthy, how to pick up on the fact that they might be unwell in the first place, and discuss the things that you need to think about when it comes to treating them for whatever it is that life throws their way. Now, if that sounds like something that you're interested in, then make sure you're subscribed and you can also just head over to dralexanswers.com to submit your question for a future episode of the show. And just before we begin and get into today's questions, I'd just like to read out this review from Jay Foote who writes, great show, awesome topic. I've always said one of the hardest things about being a pet owner is that you just don't know what's really wrong with them, if anything at all. Such a cool podcast topic and Alex is a great host, subscribed. So thanks for that great review. It's lovely to hear your feedback and I really appreciate them so much because reviews help more than you can imagine with other people finding this podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode as well, then I'd appreciate it if you could tell your friends and family and also head over to rpetshealth.com slash review to leave me a review for the show. But let's get into the questions. And the first one is from Pam, who writes that she's from Knoxville, Tennessee, and she's asking which insurance company is good for a cat or for her dog. So I'll start off by saying that pet insurance policies, they're really not all equal and they do vary in a number of different ways. And that's going to be by country as well. There may be different um, different options depending on where you live. But by and large, pet insurance policies, they vary by the excess that there is. So the amount that you need to pay or the amount that the bill needs to be before they will consider um, consider. Uh, accepting a claim and making payment for that treatment. Um, co-payments are another thing that varies. So a co-payment is a certain percentage of the bill that you may have to pay. So it might be that, for example, there's an excess of $100 and a 20% co-payment. Now, that would mean that for um, any bill that you submit, you would have to pay the first $100 of treatment. And then for anything else, you'd have to pay 20% of the total bill. Other things is what's covered by by this insurance policy. So, um, is all surg- are all surgical procedures covered? Is it only medical cover that you're given, or vice versa? Sometimes you can get just surgical only procedures, which is great if your dog or your cat breaks a leg, but it's not very good if they um, get diabetes or have arthritis or they develop a complicated medical condition where their um, their treatment is not going to be covered. The total amount covered is clearly another thing that's going to change by policy. Um, so are they only covering you up to $1,000, for example? And whatever your currency, I'd suggest that that's really not enough. $5,000, 10 15 you know, there's different amounts there that can be covered. And then is that amount cover covered per condition? So, so is it that amount in total if they break a leg and then if they get a, another problem later on the year um, is that also covered up to that total amount covered or is it per year so do you have a, a ten thousand dollars in your pet's treatment pot for example and if you use eight thousand dollars on fixing a broken leg there's only two thousand dollars left if something else comes along so that's something else to to really uh, kind of 
question and to, to be clear on with what's being covered. And then finally, exclusion. So if we're getting insurance when our pet is young, and ideally we should be, there's not going to be any exclusions based on their previous conditions because they'll have been nice and healthy. But are there exclusions based on breed or are there low dollar limits placed on certain common illnesses or diseases that your dog might get because of their breed? For example, um, some policies I've seen have a really low amount that they'll cover for cruciate ligament rupture. And the amount that's covered actually doesn't cover the cost of the best treatment option. So, there's lots to consider when we're looking at insurance policies, and that goes for insurance for, for anything, be that um, house insurance, contents insurance, vehicle insurance, you know, they're all different. So it's important that we are very clear about what's covered, about how much that's going to cost you, and and what that cost then provides for your pet should they become unwell. We really need to weigh up all of these factors when comparing which policy is best for you. So we can't just decide based on a monthly cost because the low cost ones you know are unlikely to provide the best cover possible for your pet becoming unwell there may still be very severe limits on what treatment's able to be provided for them and that's clearly not something we want to happen if um, we're insuring our pets in the first place so also talk to your vet as well while they may not be able to give you any specific advice and it may be that actually legally they're not allowed to give you specific advice because they're not financial advisors and again that will depend on the country that you're living in Um, are there any companies that they're happy to accept direct claims from so some companies are really poor at approving claims some take an awful lot of time to pay out so it might be that you submit a claim and you only get that money back six months later some clients have also been known to ring up um, after a claim's been submitted and then ask the insurance company to pay them rather than the vet which is what was previously agreed Um, Um, And all these issues mean that in many cases, unfortunately, direct claims are not accepted and so that you will need to pay for the cost of your pet's treatment at the time they need their treatment and then be responsible for claiming that back yourself. In a lot of cases, it's just too risky for um, the veterinarian to accept that direct claim because it may not be approved, uh, payment may not be made, payment may take an awful long time. And unfortunately, some people um, may try and... um, get the money directly after having said that they're happy for their vet to be paid directly. So um, yeah, talking to your vets and seeing if there's any companies that they're happy to accept direct direct claims from is also something to consider. And then finally, let's just talk about briefly alternatives to insurance. So insurance is a fantastic way of making sure that you've got the means to pay for um, your pet's treatment for whatever their pet's treatment. Like I say, if you do need to pay everything up front, then that may not be possible. It may still involve um, credit cards or other the forms of loan just to cover the bill initially before then getting uh, refunded certainly that initial initial fee um, another option is to keep a savings account for your pet um, you know and every month every fortnight whatever it is um, making a payment into that account so that should something happen you've got some money in the pot the problem with this approach clearly is that if something happens in the first few years of your pet's life when there's not very much in the account um that's not going to be of any help. You'll, you're not going to be able to afford to cover that treatment. Um, but, you know, it, there, there are other ways. And then also you can consider credit cards and loans and things like that if you're in a position to um, to be able to get credit and to, to be able to afford to get credit as well. Because whenever we're taking on debt, we really need to be aware of how much that's costing us long term and how that's going to affect us long term. So while that's not a, a pet specific problem, it's definitely something we should be thinking about when it comes to um, planning on how we're going to look after our pet should they become unwell. 
You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Show. And then my second question is from Natalie, who writes that she's got two cats who are siblings, and she's been struggling with hair loss on both of them for the last year and a half. Her vet thinks that it's most likely the result of a food allergy, and so she's been trying to eliminate ingredients that she thinks should be causing flare-ups, such as chicken and salmon. But unfortunately, after trying many different types of foods, nothing really seems to be helping to clear up the hair loss problems permanently. It might seem to get a little bit better, but then it will um, all come back again. Um, the hair loss seems to be mainly on um, the backs of their neck and on their ears um, but also one of the cat has uh, an area on the, her lower belly as well in between her back legs so are there any suggestions or can we provide kind of any ideas of what could be going on so I'll just start by saying that I really share Natalie's frustration so skin conditions in cats and dogs can be incredibly frustrating to diagnose and then treat hair loss itself can be due to a number of different causes um, clearly and that can include parasites it can include allergies and hormonal problems as well and really a big question to help with the diagnosis of hair loss in cats to start with is is your cat itchy um, or do they seem to be scratching or grooming more than normal or does the hair just seem to be falling out without seeing them groom without seeing them um, scratching and that's because hair loss due to itchy conditions it's typically due to over grooming rather than the hair just falling out um, over grooming can also be a Due to, due, due to stressing cats. And that's something that I've discussed um, quite frequently over on rpetshealth.com. It's really common in a multi-cat household, um, even with siblings. So stress and over-grooming is definitely um, a cause of hair loss. Not necessarily here, though. Now, diagnostic testing can then be done. And that can include a whole range of different things. So we can take hair plucks. So we can just pluck a little bit of hair, look under the microscope, um, and that can show us whether there's broken hair shafts, which would indicate over-grooming causing that hair loss. Um, and it can also pick up some mites occasionally. We can take skin scrapes. So we can use a little blade just to scrape the skin. That's something that can generally be done conscious without any kind of problem. And again, we're looking for mites. We can take tape prep. So take... Um, strips of sticky tape um, and stick that to the skin and then look at that under the microscope and that looks for signs of infection um, so bacteria and yeast and things like that um, we can also take a culture again looking for fungal infections like ringworm um, and also bacterial infections and then we could do blood testing to look for hormonal problems and also allergy specific tests as well which are good for environmental allergies but really are useless for food allergies although they are tests that are available despite the fact that they really are pretty much useless now if you think that a food Food allergy is the problem, then a diet trial is the only effective way to diagnose this. So, like I say, blood testing is really not worth the time of day if we're thinking about a food allergy. Certainly at this time, um, at this time, it may be in the future that we do get better tests for that. But a diet trial really is something that we need to be doing if we think that there's a food allergy involved. And what a food allergy or a food trial, sorry, involves is feeding a novel protein and carbohydrate source. So one that your pet has never come across before, has never eaten before. And this can be really tough, especially if your cat or your dog has eaten a varied diet to finding a, a protein or a carbohydrate source that they've never eaten before is really challenging. So the other option is something called a hydrolyzed diet where the components of the diet are broken down into smaller molecules that a pet wouldn't recognize even if they'd eaten it before. Now we then need to feed this food and nothing but this food for 8 to 12 weeks. We would normally expect a response by about 8 weeks but if we're getting a bit of a response we want to be keeping going for 12 weeks. We also need to be aware that if your pet, if your cat or dog eats anything else in that time then 
that can reset the clock. So they, you could be doing really well for six weeks, for five, six weeks. They've eaten nothing but this food, but then they get into another bowl of a bowl of another cat's food. And that kind of undoes all of your good work. We need to start that eight week um, time frame again. So you can see a food trial can be really challenging. Now, another complication is that if we've got little or poor response to this food trial, then a diet allergy is unlikely to be the problem. But in some situations, pets with a food allergy will respond to one diet, um, one appropriate diet better than another. So we can always then try a second diet trial with a different diet. And again, I'd say with a different protein source, a different carbohydrate source, or a different um, type of hydrolyzed diet. So that's something that your vet will clearly be able to advise you, which is most appropriate. But having a really good food history is clearly important here as well. Now, with two cats being infected, uh, a sorry affected then we really need to think of infectious components as well um, to be more likely in general so we'd think of mites here we'd think of ringworm but allergies do have a genetic hereditary component so certainly in this case where we've got siblings it could be the potential cause that there is an underlying allergic skin disease and food allergies yep they're one form of allergic skin disease we've also got flea allergic dermatitis we've got um atopic dermatitis so an envir- uh, 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 an allergy to environmental factors um so there's a number of different things that could be causing um that as well so that I hope gives you a few ideas of what the potential causes can be, maybe some investigations, additional investigations that could be done, and then how to go about uh, undertaking a, a diet trial with clear goals and clear aims and clear system of doing that to the best of your ability. And then just before we jump into the next question, I wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by The Knowledge Vault. And here you can find um, the downloads of all of my free resources, which includes checklists, guides, ebooks, and calculators. So to get free access to The Knowledge Vault, simply head over to dralexanswers.com today. And then Debelina writes, help please, I've already spayed my queen, but she still meows and it continues for seven to eight days, after which it stops for about seven to ten days and then again it starts up again. So can you help me with this issue? So to me, this sounds very much like this is a female cat that is calling like she's on heat and she's really looking to attract a mate. Now this can happen in a spayed cat if the cat's actually not been spayed in the first place so it might be that the cat's actually been rehomed with the incorrect understanding that the operation's been carried out so we might think of them as a spayed cat but actually they're still entire now if an animal is known to have been spayed with certainty this can still happen if a piece of ovary has been left behind um, during the surgery only a really tiny amount needs to be left for a cat to develop this problem because what happens is it get, it grows bigger. The remainder, the the remaining bit of ovary grows bigger, um, and it's a condition called ovarian remnant syndrome. So there's a number of different ways that we can go about trying to diagnose that. Obviously, kind of a cat showing the classic signs is going to be have a really high suspicion of index that that's the concern. And depending on the history, it might be that that's all that's needed to go and explore the abdomen to remove the offending piece of ovary. But we can also do a hormonal blood test um, to confirm that that's the problem. It's not always 100% reliable. Um, and there are other tests as well. So we can do um, a vaginal cytology. We can potentially look with ultrasound, although that can be quite challenging. Um, and there are more complicated blood tests that we can do that involve giving an injection and measuring a response um, a week or so later. Although giving the, the, the thing we inject a cat with is not necessarily going to be available to your vet. We also need to consider other conditions that can cause this increased vocalization. So it could be stress, it could be pain, it could be senility, but clearly 
that's something that um, an examination is going to determine and a question a questioning um, and a good history that your vet will take will determine. Now, if ovarian remnant syndrome is confirmed with tests or if there's no other problem that can be found um, and it's really suspected to be the case, then exploratory surgery to find and remove the piece of ovary previous left behind previously left behind is what's going to need to happen to get rid of this problem clearly your cat's not going to be able to get pregnant because um, the rest of their reproductive tract is going to have already been removed but we're still going to get the behavioral problems the cat's um, still going to be potentially attracting other males into your garden or into your area maybe getting into fights um, also going to have higher stress levels as well so we want to be removing the offending little piece of ovary Um, it's also, finally, just to say, this is really a very uncommon complication of spaying. Um, and if possible, really, I'd say talk to the original operating vet clinic about this because they may be willing to do the follow-up testing and the surgery free of charge, um, given the fact that it's a pretty uncommon complication of this procedure. And then also remember that the information that I give in these podcasts is not a substitute for a consultation and examination with your pet's veterinarian and should not be taken as specific advice for any individual pet. If your pet is unwell, if they're injured, or if your pet is suffering from any other kind of problem, or you've got any other concern or query, then talking to your vet is always the best course of action. And so moving on to my next question, which is from Sarah, who says that her dog sucks on blankets and any other type of material. But will this harm him? So it might seem like a simple question and something that, oh, you know, it's not so much of a problem just sucking on something like that. But sucking or chewing on anything made of material can mean that long strands get broken off and swallowed. And these have the potential to result in something that we call linear foreign bodies. So this is anything that is long and stretched out. And what can happen here? is that they will become stretched out um, along the length of the intestine inside and then one end can actually quite easily get stuck um, and that can then cause the intestines to become bunched up as they continue to try and kind of propel this material through the intestines. Um, The material then starts to saw its way through the intestines as they're contracting, they're kind of rubbing against this material and that's effectively cheese wiring through the intestinal wall and you can see that that's clearly going to be a big problem it can cause perforation so holes to form in the intestine and something called septic peritonitis to develop now septic peritonitis doesn't sound like a nice condition and it's really not so it has about a 50 percent fatality rate so it's really nasty and to make matters worse actually when it comes to Um, linear foreign bodies the perforation is often in an area that is really challenging to actually see if there's a hole there so even with the best surgeon the best surgical team if we're operating on these conditions it can be that there are holes that are in the intestine that uh, that that go undetected and so repeat surgeries are needed and septic peritonitis can develop and that can be really dangerous so if though um this problem is caught earlier, then emergency surgery is still going to be required because we're going to need to remove that string or that piece of material before it comes a problem. And that's often going to need multiple, what we call enterotomy. So we're going to have to make multiple cuts into the intestine to remove the string or material. And that's because often they actually, it's amazing how long they can be and they're stuck in various spots. So we need to um, make a little incision to um, just to, to, to remove that string 
in one part it then becomes stuck so we have to cut the string and then we have to make a hole somewhere else to get the rest of it and that can need to be done a number of different times and that can really just increase the risk of post-op complications again so anytime we make a an incision or a cut into the intestines then there's about a 10 percent chance that we're going to get complications so the more holes we're going to make potentially as well the the higher the likelihood of those complications so sucking on blankets chewing on any type of material it might not seem like it's going to cause a problem but it can ultimately cause fatal um, complications and fatal disease um, you know despite the best treatment and despite the best um, kind of best care that can be given so really the bottom line is don't let your dog chew or suck on anything fabric be sure to remove anything that's becoming frayed so any bedding or towels or whatever it is and also rope tug toys are not chew toys so we don't want to leave things like rope toys um, for your dog just to chew on and chew on so that little bits can um, kind of become unraveled they can fray and then be swallowed so we want to be using rope toys under supervision only as kind of tug toys we don't want to leave them as chew toys there are plenty of other alternatives to those um, such as kongs um, and licky mats and all that kind of thing that we can use instead so i hope that gives you some ideas um, you know certainly to to discourage you from letting your dog do these things but there are alternatives as well that you can use for your dog to chew on and to keep them mentally stimulated and to you know provide them with rewards as well Get your question answered at dralexanswers.com. Okay, and then my final question today is from V Manel, who asks, do you have any information on dogs with nasal tumours? How common is it and what dog breeds are most prone to this condition? So... Nasal tumours in dogs, they make up about 1%, so 1 in 100 of all cancers seen in dogs. Now, as for those dogs which are most at risk, it seems to be longer-nosed dogs that are also living in towns and cities, so those living in urban areas that are, again, at a higher risk. The most common tumour type in dogs is something called an adenocarcinoma, and that's followed then by something called a squamous cell carcinoma, and unfortunately, both of these are really nasty tumours, as I'll come on to. Now, if we're talking about a cat instead lymphoma is something that's actually the most common and from a cat's point of view that's actually much better because they can respond much better to treatment than the adenocarcinoma and the squamous cell carcinoma tumours that we see in the noses of dogs. So symptoms of tumours or a tumour in the nose um, uh, include things like nasal discharge so a really pussy and snotty um, discharge coming from the nostrils often it's just one nostril to start with it certainly can then become both nostrils. Um, The nose can also start bleeding, we can get noisy breathing, um, sneezing. Um, Once the tumour has grown to a certain size we can get facial deformity so the side of the nose starts to kind of bulge outwards a lot of the time as the tumour is putting pressure eating through the bone and then pushing kind of out towards the outside of the face. Understandably, then we can also get head pain if we've got a nasal tumour. A dog can start rubbing their face and we can get nervous problems as well because there's lots of different nerves that run um, kind of along the side of the face that can be um, implicated and affected by a nasal tumour in a dog. Now, these problems are quite similar to fungal infections and also foreign bodies, certainly some of them anyway. The nasal discharge can be very common, the, um, the sneezing, sometimes the the rubbing of the face as well. Now, we're not going to necessarily get the facial deformity and things with, um, certainly with foreign bodies, 
not likely with fungal infections either, but in the early stages, they can look very, very similar. So how can we then diagnose whether we've got a tumour in the nose of a dog or whether we're dealing with a fungal infection? Um, so aspergillosis, aspergillus is the most common one here, um, or we're dealing with a foreign body. So that could be something like a grass seed or an awn up the nose or a piece of stick or a blade of grass or something like that. So we can diagnose with x-rays, um, although actually a CT scan is often the best way to go about looking to see what's going on in the nose. It gives much better um, detail and gives a 3D picture as well. Um, and then what we can do is we can follow that by um, something called rhinoscopy, which is passing a small uh, camera up the nose, which allows us to actually visualize what's going on. That's not available everywhere, but it's something that if can be done is brilliant. Um, and then we can also take a biopsy as well. So we can either do that with the rhinoscope, so seeing using the camera to see what we're taking a biopsy of, of or we can actually do that blind as well. And often that's um, also gives us a diagnosis of what's going on. Now, unfortunately, we're often only diagnosing nasal tumours in dogs once they're quite advanced, once the tumour has already been there for quite a long period of time. Um, and if we're invading the if the tumour's invading the bone that I've already kind of touched on causing that facial deformity um, or if the tumour's close to the eyes or the brain then unfortunately curative surgery is generally not possible at all. Now if we're getting it earlier in some cases surgical removal actually of the whole nose um, or the whole front part of the nose and the nasal cavity anyway is possible and that can be curative but really it's quite a radical surgery and it's normally only really reserved for small tumours that are located towards the end of the nose so towards the nostrils and away from the brain. Now, there are other treatments that we can use. So chemotherapy, if we're using that alone, really, these tumours don't respond well to that. Um, they only have about a 30% response rate. So that's actually only 30% are responding. And often that response is really short-lived. If we're giving um, radiation therapy as well, then the results can be a bit better. I wouldn't say much better, but they can be a bit better with the average um, remission time of about 12 months. And that ranges from about nine to 15 months of age. Now, if the tumour, though, is extending into the brain, causing problems there, then, you know, really, even with chemo and radiation therapy, we're only going to expect to get four to six months of remission with that treatment. So unfortunately for a dog with a nasal tumour, then the prognosis really is not very good not very good. It can involve, you know, potentially radical surgery and some intensive chemotherapy and radiation therapy. But even going through all that, we're not going to get a really long period of life afterwards. Okay, so that's it for this episode of the podcast. I'd really appreciate it so much if you could share this podcast with your friends and families just to allow me to help more dogs and cats, which is really what my aim is. You can also submit your questions and get access to all of the downloads um, and um, information that I've got over in the Knowledge Vault just by heading over to dralexanswers.com. And so until next week, take care. You've been listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the show where you ask the questions and Dr. Alex answers. <laughs>